I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can Revolut really tell if I've ordered a takeaway for one? Following the furore over the fintech firm's ads, money blogger Iona Bain joins me to discuss over a vegan sausage roll. Most people don't necessarily understand what banks can and can't see. The letting agency fees ban finally got royal assent this week, although, as we'll hear, renters will have to wait until June for the rules to apply. They found things like £100 for cobweb removal and the gold-plated problems facing those who've transferred out of final salary pensions. Are you looking on nervously as your investment portfolio heads south? I spoke to someone who had lost tens of thousands after making some pretty poor investment decisions. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's personal finance editor, bringing you all of this week's news. To the 12,750 people who ordered a takeaway for one last Valentine's Day. You okay, hun? Not my words, as you okay, hun, is not something I believe I have ever said, but the words of an advert, one of a series by the fintech payments firm Revolut. It enraged Iona Bain, the personal finance commentator and author of the Young Money blog, caused a Twitter storm and ended up as a FT front page story last Saturday. What a turn of events. So what exactly happened? Iona joins me now on the line. Welcome to The Money Show. Hi, Claire. So what was it about this UOK Hunt advert that first sparked your rage? Um, well, rage is maybe putting it a tad strongly. Mildly um, marked. <laughs> yes, intensely irritated uh, is the phrase I would use. As you are when you see an advert on a frequent basis that makes no sense and that comes across as mocking and quite nasty in its tone. So it puzzled me on multiple levels. Firstly, I said that the brand was single-shaming those who happen to not believe that Valentine's Day is something that's worth spending a lot of money on and worth marking because it's a commercial construct. Yeah, good Um, point. Whether you're married, single or in a relationship, it's a con. Absolutely. If you want to celebrate it, that's up to you. But if you want to get a single takeaway, that's your right. And it's no... It's no business of Revolut to decide if that's a good or a bad thing. So I thought that was a very backwards message to send out. But I was also very concerned about what it was saying regarding their customers' data. They were suggesting that they could actually see what their customers were buying through their accounts. And we've subsequently found out that that's not true. And unfortunately, Revolut just did not own up to this in the first instance when I called them out for 
this very, very strange claim, they completely ignored that and, and instead decided to focus on the fact that this advert had triggered some snowflakes, essentially, which was such a misrepresentation, I think, of the very legitimate criticism that lots of people had about these adverts. Well, certainly another one of the adverts um, suggested they could tell that thousands of people who um, had bought a vegan sausage roll, this, Mm. of course, being the new plant-based snack offered by Greg's. And when I Mm. first saw that advert, I immediately thought, how can they tell whether we've bought a vegan sausage roll? They cost a pound, but there are also, I know because I went to a Greg's to double check before I published my column, about 10 other items inside of Greg's that cost one pound. And and indeed, as you say, when I phoned up Revolut and said, well, how did you know that it was um, this many thousand vegan sausage rolls they said oh we made it up Um, and their spokesperson added we should have had a line in the ad saying it was a spoof now you thought well enough is enough and you actually called up the advertising standards authority and referred the advert to them for being wrong yeah absolutely and whilst the asa said that it wasn't within their remit Mm. Um, to adjudicate on the advert, they did pass it to the Financial Conduct Authority, which is now looking into whether Revolut misrepresented the service that it provides and whether it has essentially misled the public on how much data it can see regarding customers' accounts. And I think this is a really important point because most people don't necessarily understand what banks can and can't see in relation to their personal data. So it's really, really crucial that brands represent that accurately in their marketing. And I don't think it's acceptable to make up numbers and not in any way clarify that this is a spoof, which, in fact, we've now discovered it's just a really awful rip-off of the Spotify advert from a few years ago. Mm. But you can't just put that kind of advert out there without any caveats to make it clear that it's a spoof and not expect people to be really confused and worried about what financial companies are doing with customers' data. So I'm very glad that the FCA is looking into this. Will Revolut decline to comment further on the specifics of the FCA referral or make a further statement for this podcast, although it has apologised to its customers? Now, one of the ironies about this, of course, is that as a fintech firm, Revolut's trying to take on the big banks and the chief reason many people hold one of its payment cards is because if you use them overseas, you won't get charged the 3% average transaction fee that a UK bank would charge you. Indeed, they do actually have a very good product that people have been very satisfied with. And I think that's why this is definitely a, a real mistake and a real misstep for Revolut, because unfortunately, most of us don't have a very active approach to our banking. We tend to stick with the same banks for years and years. And not many people will be prepared to try a new company, let alone one that hasn't been around for that long. So it's imperative that those companies communicate that they can be trusted and that they're not going to use their customers' data against them. They're going to always use that data in their customers' interest to help them. Like a lot of fintech brands do. Um, They often make that data available to their customers so they can see where they're overspending and where they can cut back. But in this case, all the Revolut did was make up some numbers and put them in an advert and essentially spread a very misleading message about what it can do.
Well, some interesting takeaways from this experience. See what I nice. did there? I, thought, I see what you did there, Claire. You're on it. You're on it. Well, thank you very much to Iona Bain, author of the Young Money blog and occasional contributor to FT Money. You can read my column, Does Revolut Really Know If I've Ordered a Takeaway for One, online now on ft.com slash money. And if you want to follow Iona on Twitter for more early leads of front page stories, Iona, what's your Twitter handle? at Iona Young Money. I really, really hope that I don't have another Twitter storm this week because I don't think my uh, my stress levels and my blood pressure can take it. So I'm hoping it's going to be a little bit quieter for the next few weeks. Good. Lots of nice Valentine's Day messages, I hope, will be oh, popping yes. up. I hope so too. There was some good news for renters this week. Finally, several years after it was first announced, the government has finally given royal assent to a bill that will quash letting fees for tenants. Sadly, we still have to wait until the 1st of June for it to come into force. But nevertheless, the news has pleased FT reporter Alice Hancock, who's been writing about the issue this week. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Claire. So tell us firstly what this means for the millions of people like you who are currently renting a flat privately. Well, I mean, it's very good news. If you're renting a flat in the private market, the upfront cost at the moment can be prohibitive, frankly. They can charge up to, I think the worst in London people have heard is £800. Just and that's fees. a letting agent charging an administration fee for letting a property. It's not the deposit or any yeah. kind of security. It's just for them to fill in a few forms. Exactly. It's the form filling, it's reference checks. And then on top of that £800, you'll probably have to stump up a, say, 1500 to £2,000 deposit, which for people, millennials, you know, people on housing benefits in the private market, single parents, that's not money you're going to have in your account, probably. Now, one of the things that you look at in your column is like the level of these fees that can be charged. You know, you said there's a credit reference fee, but also a fee for moving in on a Saturday. I've never heard of that one before. <laughs> it's amazing what they could find to charge for. There was a fascinating piece on Shelter, who do a lot of work with Generation Rent, who sort of represent private renters. Um, and they found things like £100 for cobweb removal. They found £200 for having to remove a set of new saucepans from a flat that had just been moved out of and they charged it to the people who just moved out. So, I mean, it seems almost flagrant when you hear about stories like that. So, of course, for anyone who's moved flat in the past three years or so, letting agent fees have still applied, but going forwards from the 1st of June, they'll be swept away. They will be swept away, which is great. They will still be default fee if you lose your key, which I think is probably fair. You know, there's a cost involved in the agent Mm. sorting the key out. Whether that gets abused by agents and they start charging you hundreds and hundreds of pounds for that key, we'll see, given their current uh, practice. There will also, I mean, they haven't, the bill doesn't take account of the standard of accommodation that's provided. I mean, I spoke to Victoria Spratt, who's the first to sort of spearhead this campaign in, mm. in government, and she said that some of the things she'd seen, sort of windows that would never shut, ceilings that were dripping water onto tenants, that still remains and it could actually become worse if landlords decide that it's too expensive to rent their properties and they want to cut costs. And the other thing is ease of eviction. There's something called a section 21, which means that a landlord can much more easily evict a tenant, which the bill doesn't yet take account of either. So those will be things going forward they might need to look at. So there are still vulnerabilities um, in the system for, for tenants, even though they won't be charged these fees. But the obvious question is, how will 
the letting agents try and pass on those fees to landlords? I mean, could we have a kind of law of unintended consequences, as it were, where the landlord, who now has to pay more for the services of the letting agent, tries to put up your rent, for example? I think that certainly could be the case. And I know that ALA, the Association of Residential Letting Agents, have done research and they say that they think rents will be put up by about £103 a week on average. Evidence suggests, looking at places like Scotland where letting fees were banned in 2011-2012, that actually rents haven't gone up. And in fact, in Scotland, rents increased less than they did in England in between, I think it was 2012 and 2016. Similarly, in Germany, the the effect is on the market has been negligible. So I think competition for rented property will keep rents low. I think estate agents will have to be more efficient in how they operate. And I know in Scotland, estate agents said they're the ones that have to swallow the the costs, but they're still they're still viable businesses. Yes, there are still letting agents in Scotland. Well, thanks very much there to Alice Hancock, FT reporter. You can read her millennial money column, Tenancy Fees Ban, Are Renters Home and Dry? online now at ft.com slash money. And if you're a tenant or a buy-to-let landlord and you have something to say about this story, get in touch with us. Our email address is money at ft.com or you can follow us on Twitter at ftmoney. Record transfer values have spurred hundreds upon thousands of people to cash out of generous final salary pension schemes, swapping a guaranteed annual income for a large lump sum which they, or an investment professional, goes on to manage. However, a number of FT money readers have been sharing the gold-plated problems of transferring out of gold-plated pensions. And FT money reporter Kate Bearley joins me in the studio now. Welcome, Kate. Hi. So some of these FT readers have been wondering if they did the right thing. Yeah, I mean, the issue is that many of these people have taken the plunge just as investment markets have headed into much choppier water. So the past 10 years or in 20 years have looked pretty good in terms of investment returns. But the idea of managing a pot and particularly one that would have paid out very predictable income in the past when the future is looking much more uncertain is fairly unnerving. Um, On top of that, the fees that you pay mean that at least one person I spoke to who had very recently transferred had already seen his portfolio decline which is obviously a bit of a scary sight. I also spoke to someone else who had lost tens of thousands after making some pretty poor investment decisions when he decided to manage his own pot and still struggling to build that back up. So there's quite a lot of risk in this process. What strategies are readers and their investment advisors adopting or suggesting as a result? Well, it should be said that a lot of readers are kind of asking about cash and wanting to sit on quite a lot of cash. Because they um, fear the stock market will fall further. Exactly, because I they're nervous. possibly think why they were that. <laughs> Very nervous about what might happen. Um, in fact, investment advisors are, are saying that's not a great idea unless you do really need that money uh, in the short to medium term. And that's kind of six months to two years cash expenditure might be okay to hold. Now, beyond that, diversification is obviously the key when it comes to managing a pot. Um, And equity income funds are also particularly important. And that's particularly for those investors who want to rely on the natural income of the pot, because there are kind of two main strategies that SIP investors tend to use when they take income from their pension. Now, one of those is that you rely on, as I said, the natural dividends that your portfolio throws off. Um, And that means it's a good idea because you don't need to run 
down the pot to take that income that you want. You're just, you know, using the natural income it provides. The other way is to decide on an income that you want to take and then sell down the units in your funds and your portfolio to make that up. The obvious negative there is if you're forced to sell units in your funds when when they're down, when markets have fallen, which might mean you need to sell more than you want to to come up with the cash that you need, uh, a phenomenon called pound cost ravaging. So, you know, there are two ways to do it, neither better than the other necessarily, but risks, risks with both. Well, all things for readers to consider discussing with their advisors, because, of course, if your fund is worth more than £30,000, you're forced to take independent financial advice, regardless of whether you think you're capable of making that decision for yourselves. But, I mean, for anybody listening to the podcast who's been thinking about whether they should transfer out of a final salary scheme, is there anything else in your feature that they should consider? Yeah, well, firstly, I think people need to think about what they're gaining and exactly what they're giving up. Obviously, we've talked about the risks, but there are sometimes good reasons to transfer, particularly for inheritance purposes. Although uh, that's not a guaranteed that oh, no, the, not the a guarantee. will stay the same. No, well, quite. But as it stands currently, DC pensions are easier to, to pass on at death. If you die before age of 75, you can pass on lump sums free of tax. Not the case with a DB pension. There are also life expectancy issues. You know, if, if you have a long-term illness or shorter life expectancy, maybe a good reason to transfer. But consider the fact that if you do transfer, you're going to have to make this pot last for your entire lifetime as long as you need it. And that means not only preventing your pot from declining in value, but it means that you need it to keep growing enough that you can keep taking that income. So, you know, it's, it's about kind of planning how you're going to both grow and take the income. Something I also talk about are the impact of fees. So depending on the route mm. you go down, you'll likely be paying fairly high fees, both for transfer advice, and that could be 1% to 3% of your pot just up it's front. In, it's incredible that it's calculated as a percentage of mm. the pot rather than a fee for the exactly. advice. Because, and, then, and then ongoing, you know, if you if you give it to someone to manage, could be 2% a year. On a £500,000 portfolio, that's 10000 a year in fees alone. And that obviously has a big impact, particularly if markets look much more anemic. Well, can it be any wonder that the FCA, in its wisdom, says its default advice is don't transfer out of the final salary scheme in the first place? Well, thanks very much to Kate Bailey. You can read her feature now on ft.com slash money, gold-plated problems. That's it for The Money Show this week. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us money at ft.com or for the latest news updates, follow us on Twitter at ftmoney. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.